refer to the book of Revelation to uh, chapter 21. We're going to look at the first eight verses of this glorious passage describing what it's like to go home. So if you would, uh, I'm going to read, and if you would stand, please, as I do so, uh, in honor of God's word, if you're able to stand, please do so. This is what God's word says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things are passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray as we look at home and being at home with you and you being at home with us. Father, we pray we would find in these great promises great encouragement for us today when we are not home yet. And Father, we ask your blessing on our time in your word and that you would illumine it to our eyes, that you would fill our hearts with it, that the Holy Spirit might use it to shape us to be like Jesus. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, if you would look with me at verse 1. Uh, John sees, the scripture says, a new heaven and a new earth. And there is debate among scholars when it says new, does it mean, uh, are, are we talking about completely new, or do we mean renewed? So in other words, are we talking about a universe in which God has completely destroyed the, the old creation and made a new one, or is this like one of those HGTV shows that I love so much? where they take some place that is obviously a dump and they basically gut it completely like down to the studs and you know in some cases rebuild the foundation and all of this kind of stuff and then and then when they do the big reveal that someone comes in and they go oh my gosh it's like a new house right i love that moment but is that what we're talking about here is it new in the sense of being much, much better than the old, but still kind of retaining some identification with the old? Or is it just, you know, is it, what, what are we talking about? I take the view that when it says new, that it means, are you ready? New. Okay. I know that that maybe sounds pedantic, but here's the, here's the deal. 
the scripture, God is capable of being very, very clear. And when he says new, he means new. And by the way, in case anybody was confused, uh, flip back a page, if you will, uh, to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, where the scripture says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, meaning God is seated on this great white throne, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. What happened to the old creation? It disappeared. Or as Peter says, the earth and all its works will be burned up. The elements will melt with intense heat, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. Okay? John's a little less descriptive than that here, but that's what he means. That everything in this creation, everything in this universe as it exists will be gone. And then he says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Meaning a brand new one. Not a renovated one. Not, not one in which God has had demo day and then rebuilt. This is new. Entirely new. Why is that? Because It is because there's a re the reason why there is a need for something new is because everything in this creation has in some sense been tainted by and also in some way sustains the presence of sin and evil within it. And so, for example, earlier in the book of Revelation, we see the sun by which men sustain their evil and wickedness, we see the sun itself judged. We see the earth and the, and the seas and everything on the land judged because of the fact that they are sustaining wicked people in their wickedness and the devil enabling his, his wickedness to occur as the place in which these things that God made are destroyed and marred and tainted by sin. And so after... God has done the final judgment. He will include in the judgment everything in creation which sin has touched and He will fold it all up like a board game at the end of the night and put it away. And something new will be brought forth in which not only is there no sin and can there be no sin, but also in which even the opportunity for sin to do any damage is gone. And nothing that has been tainted by sin, touched by sin, uh, will remain whatsoever. It'll be new. In addition to that, there's no longer any sea. Now, if you're like Karen and I, who love the beach, who are planning to go there this summer, because we love to hear the waves crash, like, we don't want to swim there because there are sharks, right? But we like the beach. We like, we're like we like professional-level waders in the water. Right? We walk along. We get our, up to our knees wet. Seriously, the beach we go to is the shark bite capital of the world. And so we don't get in further than that. But we love the beach. And so you read that and you go, the sea is gone? I mean, come on, where, what happened? I don't know about that. Is that a good thing? Yes, it's a good thing. Let me explain why. Because as much as I love the beach, the sea is a place of storms and chaos and darkness and danger. 
And that's how the Jews saw it. And if you don't believe me that that's what the sea is, then get yourself out in a small boat about maybe two or three miles offshore somewhere when a storm comes up. And all of a sudden, you'll have a different view of what it's like to be out in the sea. And the point that John is making as he mentions that the sea is no more is that all of the darkness and danger and storm of the sea is gone. There's nothing dangerous or scary. There's no storms anymore in God's new creation. Look at verse 2. John sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. Why, by the way, is it coming down from heaven? Because it is going to rest on the new earth. And that is where we will live. For eternity. On a new earth. Not this earth. A new earth. We sometimes use the word heaven as a shorthand for this. But what we mean is this. That we will dwell on the new earth. The present heaven as it exists now is at best a temporary dwelling for God's people until such time as this occurs. So if you die right now, your, pres your body goes into the ground, your spirit goes immediately to the presence of God to dwell with Him in heaven until the resurrection of the dead from the grave. And when that happens, your body and spirit are united together, your body is transformed, and you live in that body forever. But you will live through the millennial kingdom, and you will live uh, until this moment, the new heaven and the new earth, and you will dwell in the great city on the new earth for eternity. And this place is described as being like a bride dressed for her husband because since it is our dwelling place and we are the bride, it takes on the characteristics of radiance and purity and beauty that are reflective of the fact that we who will be God's transformed people are living there with Him. In verse 3, God gives you some of the most magnificent promises in the entire Bible. If these verses are not highlighted in your Bible, you need to get yourself a Bible highlighter and go crazy. In verse 3 and 4, because these are great promises. You see it? The text says, I, I heard a loud voice from the throne speaking. Who's speaking? The guy who's seated on the throne. Who is that? This is God. This is God's voice speaking from the throne. And this is what he says. God himself speaks and he says, Behold, in other words, that's, that's a Bible word meaning, listen here. Listen up. Pay attention to this that I'm about to say. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now the word dwell there, the dwelling place that he will live with us, it's, this is a rich word. It's not maybe brought out very well in your English Bible, but it's the word that, that literally is the word tabernacle. Tabernacle. And that is a word that has a rich biblical history. 
If you remember, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were enslaved in Egypt, and they came out, and they were at Sinai for a year, and then God gave them instructions on how to build a structure. Do you remember what it was called? The tabernacle. And it was because God was going to dwell by His presence literally in the midst of those people. And so they literally camped three tribes on the side of the tent all the way around, 12 tribes of Israel around the tent, and, and God's presence dwelt in that place, in that tabernacle among them. And so you had a pillar of cloud in the daytime that gave the people shade, and you had the pillar of fire by night that gave them a nightlight, which is awesome, right? If you're out in the desert and there's no light, the one thing you want is to be able to see, and literally the presence of God provides the light by which they saw. But... The, the limitation of that tabernacle is that uh, sacrifice could not be made that would allow people to get close to God. Because it was just animal sacrifices. And so all that could happen is that you could get kind of close. You could, if you were a regular person, come up to the altar and confess your sins and have sacrifice made for them. And you could stand near to God's presence in the Holy of Holies. If you were the high priest, once a year you got to actually go into God's presence, but it was a fearful thing because God dwelt with you through blood sacrifice. And then we read, as you come to the New Testament, this beautiful word, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word of God became flesh, and the word shows up again, and tabernacled among us. He dwelt with us. He tabernacled. The tabernacle that they, to they toted through the wilderness is now here, living among us as one of us. And, and, we, and uh, in fact, John says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you got to see God walking around. But it wasn't permanent. Amen? Jesus' earthly life was somewhere between 33 and 37 years, depending on how badly you believe the ancients messed up the calendar when they figured out when Jesus was born? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't in the year zero. Uh, we know it was actually before that, but we don't know how far off they were. But somewhere between 33 and 37 years that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, but you can't see Jesus walking around now. But guess what? Verse 3 is telling us that He will tabernacle with us for all eternity. God Himself will be with them as their God and they will be His people. He will not simply visit with us. Remember, we think the Garden of Eden was a big deal, right? The Garden of Eden is a big deal. It was God's perfect plan, perfect design, perfect place. And He would come every day and visit the people. He would come and visit. And that's great. 
And when, and when Jesus became incarnate as a man, God again came and visited among us. But if you'll forgive me the irreverence, what, what, what verse 3 is telling us is that, is that God is going to create a place where He hangs out with us. Where we live with Him and He with us. And we see Him face to face. And He'll be with us as our God and we will be His people. And we'll be, you'll be able to get as close to Him as you want without any fear whatsoever. You'll be at peace with Him. Entirely. And then, if that promise is not good enough for you, hold on, because it gets better. Look at verse 4. God continues to give us good promises here. The, the presence of God will be so good and yet so different from anything else uh, in all of creation, everything you're familiar with, that God describes it not just by the fact that He is present, but also by what things are not present in His presence. You see that? There are four things. Uh, that adds to a list, by the way. There are seven things excluded from heaven. And the first one is the sea. There are four more. They also excluded from heaven are tears, death, mourning, pain. Tears, death, mourning, and pain. There will be no more regrets or shame or hurt or embarrassment or any other reason to cry anymore. There will be no more death. In fact, as we saw last week, Scott did a beautiful job, by the way, explaining uh, that passage last week, and he talked about how death is cast into hell. In other words, death itself is put to death. And there is no more death. Nothing and no one that you love will die anymore forever. There will also be no more mourning because we will no longer lose anyone or anything that we love. And there will never again be any reason to be sad about anything. And there will be no more pain. You know, I went through this week, I, I tweaked my knee on Monday. And my body periodically reminds me that I'm in my upper 40s. And I cannot, I, you know, I still think I can do stupid things quickly. And I can't, right? And it reminds me from time to time. But physical pain like that is not the worst kind of pain that we experience, is it? Not really. Physical pain comes and goes. You can take ibuprofen for it. But spiritual and emotional pain sometimes lasts for a lifetime. And guess what won't be there? Any of that. No physical pain. No emotional pain. No spiritual pain. We will be healed entirely of all pain. 
nothing in our souls or our bodies will hurt anymore because all of the sin within us and all of the effects of the sin done to us will be removed. How will that happen? Because we'll be living face to face with our Creator. And He will heal us perfectly. God will be at home with us and we will be at home with Him in a world that is as different as eagles and earthworms. And His loving presence, according to verses 5-9, through is our eternal reward. And if you look at these verses, that's what you see. That what God does is He underlines and highlights uh, the reality of these promises. And also the fact that only His children will enjoy these things. So if you would, look at the text with me. In verse 5, God gives us his reassurance that these things will indeed come true. And I think he knows because he understands that the world that we live in is tainted by sin and you can't trust anybody. And so any promises that sound too good to be true, you can typically say, oh, well, that's never going to happen. Because things that are too good to be true in this in, in this world invariably are. And so God underlines it and says this, Behold, I, in other words, listen here, pay attention, I am making all things new. In other words, nothing of this life, nothing of the suffering and pain and difficulty and death, uh, nothing of the chaos and storms and and struggles of this life will remain. I'm making all things new. All things. And nothing about the way things are now will remain. And all that has been tainted and damaged and marred and destroyed by sin will be destroyed and everything will be made new again. And God tells John to write it down so that we can see it in print. You notice that? He says, write this down, John. Why does he tell him to write it down? It isn't for John's benefit. It's for our benefit. So that we can read it and put our trust in it. Uh, so, and, and God is saying, look, no shading, no shaping, no spin, no lying. This is true. This is going to happen. This is trustworthy and true. This is straight 200 proof gospel truth straight from the mouth of God himself. And verse 6 and 7 underline the certainty of the fulfillment of God's promises here even more. John, God speaks and He says, it is done. Now that's an interesting phrase. It's First of all, it's present tense. Meaning, God is speaking of events which are future from our perspective 2,000 years after John wrote as if they are already present reality about that what he means is is that is that i am speaking to you of things that are yet future as if they are already the reality that you know 
because I am the God, he says, and, he, and this is why he uses this title, I am the God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He who brought creation into existence will bring creation to its fulfillment, its destiny, its telos, its finality. He who is the Alpha is the Omega. I am able to tell you that this is going to happen. And I am able to speak of it as if it is already present because in my mind it already is. Because I am bringing it about. And you can trust my character and my word and my promise because my word is good. And on top of that, check this. Do you see this? How will it happen? Will it happen by our effort? No. It'll happen solely, entirely, completely by grace. He says, to the one who conquers, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. You know what's great about a spring? A spring is a source of water that doesn't dry up. And he says, I'll give anybody who wants this the ability to have it. And I'll give it to you without payment. In other words, entirely by grace. Simply by putting your trust in Jesus, you receive the water of life. And the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. In other words, the idea is uh, the one who conquers is John's term, which is unique to Revelation for everyone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ. Because the only way you gain entry to this place is through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the only way, it is the sufficient way, it is the entire doorway into this place. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? That is, the, that is what the gospel is. And you receive it without payment. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You, you simply get it gratis. And when you receive it, you, are, you become a conqueror. How about that? What do you conquer? You conquer the world and all its temptations. You can't conquer your own sin nature. And you conquer the works of the devil in your life by grace through faith in Christ. And God says right here, if you are one of those conquerors, one of those people who has conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil by faith in Jesus Christ, then you get the mother of all inheritances. Jeff Bezos' kids have got nothing on this. If you're an heir of Elon Musk, you don't even rate in the same paragraph as the fact that you become an heir of all things that have ever been made uh, and all things which belong to God, you are His adopted child and therefore it all belongs to you. This entire new universe that God will make belongs to you. It's your inheritance. And you dwell with God face to face and He is your inheritance. What do you got to compare with that? Well, you have a Bentley? Yay! I got this! I got the inheritance of the people of God. Of God Himself face to face. 
All these things will be mine. All these things will be yours if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And by the way, that is an important exception, which verse 8 draws out a little further. You must be a believer in Jesus Christ to receive these things. They are not the inheritance of everyone who simply thinks they would rather go to heaven because hell. They are the inheritance of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And by that overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse 8 is both a warning and a reassurance. It's a warning to those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ that they will not be there. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's a reassurance, it's a promise. These people will not be there. Because part of what makes the world as messed up as it is, is the presence of sin and sinners. Amen? And so sin and sinners will not be there. And they cannot enter into this. And there will be no possibility that any of this can be spoiled. Now let me look in specific at the categories of, of sinners here. It's a long list. And by the way, this is not exhaustive. This is representative. But the first one is the cowardly, which I think speaks to those who say that they have faith in Jesus Christ, but when confronted on it or when it costs them something, they punt their profession of faith. Oh, wait, hold on. Wait, wait a second. You mean I, I might get banned from social media if I come out as a follower of Jesus? Uh, nope, I'm out. Uh, you mean I might go to jail if I'm a follower of Jesus? Nope, sorry, I'm done. Uh, you mean that my friends might think I'm uncool at my school if I come out as a follower of Jesus? No, I'm not, not going to do that anymore. It's cowardice. Sin. And Jesus says the cowardly will not be there. Then there's the faithless, those people who never believed in Jesus in the first place. And the detestable, which... Um, I don't know if you have a junk drawer at your house, but we have one next to the stove. We have like batteries and old phone cords and like old cell phones and stuff in it. It's just kind of a mixture of stuff, right? And no one knows what's in there, but if you're looking for something, you might find it in there. And, um, and the word detestable is a junk drawer word, if you will. It encompasses a bunch of stuff. But the idea is that people who have given their lives over to being evil, who have just completely rebelled against God. Next are the murderers, people whose hatred and rage has borne fruit in killing someone else and never repenting of it. Because by the way, all of these sins can be forgiven. Every single one. How do you conquer these things by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone because do these things categorize people who are in the kingdom of God yes Peter was a coward who repented it who punted his faith as soon as it got expensive Paul was a murderer who then became an apostle to the, of representing the very Jesus 
of the people he tried to destroy. Right? So none of this, when it's talking about these things, are saying, you know, all you people who've ever done this, you're out. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if you never repent of these things, you won't be there. Also, the sexually immoral, again, which is a drunk drawer word for every type and kind of, of non-marital, uh, non-one-man, one-woman, one-flesh, covenantal uh, sexuality. So, uh, if you're into pornography or fornication or pedophilia or adultery or homosexuality or prostitution or any number of other types and kinds of sexuality that involve anything other than one man, one woman, one flesh covenant relationship, that will exclude you from membership in God's family and being present in this place unless you repent. How about sorcerers? Uh, that's those who pursue spirituality through contact with demons or through altered states of consciousness. The word actually is the word pharmakos, from which we get our word pharmacy. And you may not know this, but one of the best ways to get yourself in contact with the spiritual realm is through drug use. In fact, many of the early people who experimented with things like LSD uh, did so because they were looking for a higher consciousness outside of this normal way of experience. And so there are certain things you can take that will put you in touch with spiritual realities that are beyond this life. Y'all remember Jim Morrison and the Doors? Some of y'all remember him, right? The Lizard King, right? And he was, he was kind of a weird dude. But the reason they called the band the Doors is because they were looking for new doors, into a different kind of altered state of life. And if you ever heard him interviewed, you know that he found some. You know, the 60s were not kind to that guy, right? Um, you know, uh, same thing with lots of the other early people who were into the drug culture in this country were not looking to get high as much as they were looking to get spiritual. And that is a long standing tradition in religions all over the world. You know, take some of this and uh, make contact with other whatever spiritual realities you find out there. And there are demons that are all too willing to help you with that. Also listed are idolaters, people who bow down to false gods. Now, that can take the form of a statue. That can take the form of possessions. That can take the form of position. That can take the form of politics. Now, let me tread carefully, but hear me when I say this. Much of our political activism, left, right, and center, in this country, in this moment, takes the form of idolatry. Where we are bowing down before some person as if they are the Savior. And that's idolatry. And it's wrong. And we as Christians and as the Christian community dare not put some man where Jesus Christ alone deserves to be. It's idolatry. 
there is one God and there is one Savior. And I will not trade him out for a different one. For access to temporary political power in what is ultimately a country that will be destroyed when there is a new heaven and a new earth. All right. Last in the list, anyone who's a liar. Everyone who rejects the truth, who refuses to tell it, this is not, as I said, an exhaustive list. All unrepentant sinners are shut out from the new heaven and the new earth and dwelling in God's presence. Instead, they dwell under His eternal wrath in the lake of fire, the second death. Your physical death is not the worst thing to happen to you. The worst thing that could happen to you is that you would die a second time in the lake of fire. Now that leads me to two very obvious points of application for us today. One is this. A question. Will you receive the eternal reward of living in God's presence in the new heaven and the new earth and dwell with Him, or will you dwell under His wrath in the lake of fire? Today is the day to make up your mind, if you haven't. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. If, if anything, in the last year, uh, it, we all should have learned is that you are not guaranteed that tomorrow will be like today. And the opportunities you have today, you need to enjoy today. And if you aren't sure where you would spend eternity, now is the time to put your faith in Jesus Christ and drink freely of the water of life, the spring of eternal life. And anticipate everlasting joy in His presence forever. But understand very clearly that God will give each person what they really want. If what you really want is to be delivered from sin and death and hell and to spend eternity with God through faith in Jesus Christ, God will give that to you by His grace. But if you hate Him and you want nothing to do with Him, then I have wonderful news for you. God has a place prepared for all those who want nothing to do with Him and who will get nothing to do with Him for eternity. The problem is, all of the things which are enjoyable about life come from Him, so His absence is a severe deprivation. It is the lake of fire. God would far rather have you turn from sin and live through faith in His Son. And that you would know that all of the glorious promises He has made to you are yours to cherish and live in light of them. Amen? Now, if you are a believer, and I know all of you, and I know almost every one of you in this room has already put their trust in Jesus Christ, and we, therefore, have a different reality. These things are ours right now. Now, we don't see them yet. But God says, it is done. These are ours today. And that should do a couple things for us. One, it should loosen our attachment to the things of this life. 
Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, those who use the things of this world as though they're not ensnared by them, as not engrossed in them, as not entangled up in them. Right? So enjoy God's blessings. Get yourself a new car if you can afford it. You know, uh, go on a vacation. Eat the good steak, right? Enjoy all that stuff, right? But don't mistake the blessings of God for a life. Loosen your attachment to these things because all these things are ultimately temporary failing and fading away. To be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And secondly, if we're believers and these things are true, and they are, all things will one day become new. And since that is true, then that means that every day that we live, we're one day closer to being there. <coughs> Excuse me. Every day that we live, we're one day closer. And that ought to fill our days, whatever happens, with joy and hopefulness and anticipation, knowing that we're getting closer. Amen? So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You love us. We thank You that You fill Your Bible, Your Word to us with all kinds of wonderful promises like these. And that You love us so much that You can't wait to live with us face to face, to hang out with us and allow us to hang out with You. And You've done everything possible everything necessary to bring that reality to bear in our lives and to bring it to fruition and completion in Christ. And Father, we ask that you would um, help us to remember these things and to live in light of them this week and next week and until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.